Hey, welcome back to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors here. Some people call me the lead pastor, the senior pastor, whatever. I'm not big on titles, but you are joining us in the middle of this series through the book of Revelation. Again, like we've mentioned, this is a survey. This is a high-level overview of some of the major theologies and themes and ideas of the book of Revelation. And uh, so uh, if you haven't had a chance to catch um, the last six messages, I wanna encourage you to go back and journey with us right from the beginning. But as always, I wanted to just add a few comments in here before we get into the message. And the reason that I do these is often after I'm done preaching, I, I realized, man, maybe I didn't say something the way I meant to say it. it. It came across in a different way, or maybe I totally forgot to say something. That happens all the time. Um, or, or maybe somebody's come to me with a question or a comment that has been helpful in understanding how people have heard this. And so I also do these because this is a podcast. You can turn this off right now if you want. Uh, So I'm not worried about time. I'm not worried about how long this uh, goes on. I want to try and provide you with the fullest sort of um, the fullest thing. I can't think of the right word, but the fullest thing as possible uh, right now to help you in uh, processing through this and working through this stuff with us. I am a little bit more concerned with time when it comes to uh, speaking to uh, a group of hundreds of people who are waiting for lunch and uh, I've already been speaking for 45 minutes. So that's why I just leave certain things out and um, don't have a chance to elaborate on many things. In the book of Revelation, there's so much in there that we couldn't possibly cover in a one hour or 45 minute sermon. So that's why I kind of do these little prefaces each week through this. So I wanted to just say a couple of things before we dive into this. And one of them that I didn't talk about, but I had a question about after, relates to my interpretive lens through uh, the two witnesses, through the physical temple in Jerusalem, and whether or not we are to understand chapter uh, 11 specifically in a literal sense. And I grew up uh, with a literal interpretive lens for Revelation. I grew up with a pre-rapture, secret rapture of the church, pre-rapture, pre-millennium, literal seven-year, big T tribulation kind of view. I grew up shaped by the Left Behind series and, and initially shaped by the Thief in the Night movie series back in the 70s. Uh, put up your hand if you remember those. Those scared the living daylights out of me. But anyway, so that's the lens that I grew up in. And I present in uh, my message today how my thinking has shifted on this and how I think that it is, I would lean to more of a symbolic interpretation of um, much of the book of Revelation. But And what I wanna just say regarding that is that even though I think these two witnesses are largely symbolic, I don't think that that negates um, 
that John is actually trying to express, the real things are being talked about. And I don't think as well that, um, you know, maybe seeing the, the, um, the physical temple in Jerusalem as a maybe um, is, is offsides scripturally. And so I just also want to note with that, because somebody asked me this, when I say that I interpret, uh, you know, the, the temple, the two witnesses in Jerusalem and whatever, mostly from an interpretive, uh, from a symbolic lens now, sorry, I, I'm not suggesting that I subscribe to full-on replacement theology. Replacement theology would be the belief that um, because of what Jesus has done for us, um, Israel effectively has been <laughs> totally consumed by uh, the church, quote-unquote, and the body of Christ, that there is no place for God to work nationally with Israel or um, with them as a people of his promise, that the church age now and the new covenant we're in has obliterated all of those former things. So I don't subscribe to that, but, but I also don't land in a classical dispensational spot either. Uh, I don't believe that the body of Christ has to be raptured off the earth in order for Jesus to deal with Israel. I don't think, I think there's room for this. I don't think that uh, Revelation 11 and the two witnesses and the temple needs to be a literal interpretation in order for God to still have a specific plan and purpose for how he deals with Israel, the promises that he's made to them as a people group, and maybe even some national um, kind of geographical realities, I think that those can still be in play. So I would be somewhere in the middle of that. I just want you to know that uh, I don't talk a lot, I don't talk about that at all in, in my message. And so I just want to be clear that I kind of land somewhere in the middle. And I think that there's room for that as we as we uh, wrestle deeply with the contents of the book of Revelation. And so I just want you to know in all of these things that there, I, I think we need to approach these with humility, with gentleness, with grace, um, and recognize that there are uh, phenomenal, uh, good, smart brothers and sisters of Jesus who hold different views on these things. And they're not things to divide over. And so I just wanted to say that before we kick into this week's message in the book of Revelation. My name is Andrew. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, um, like we've been doing, we're at the midway point in this uh, series as we just walk through the book of Revelation. Again, uh, for those who have been with us for a while, um, you know this is a survey. This is an overview, not a verse by verse. Um, but we're in the midway point. And just as we have been doing, we're going to be reading through the whole text uh, this morning that we're covering. And so if you've got your little scripture journal that we have, by the way, we are only at the midway point. If you still want one of these, there's a few in the lobby um, that you can pick up. You can run out right now if you want or um, get them after. But these have been really great. They allow us to just track with each other through this, so you can pull that out. It'll also be on the screen uh, behind us, but I just wanted to read again 
of the reason that we're doing this is the Bible was not written to be an academic textbook just studied in a seminary. It's great that that happens. The Bible was written to be read in the hearing of the whole church. And specifically, Revelation starts in chapter one, and John says, uh, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Um, and that's why we're reading this. So uh, again, you could follow along in your own Bible, your scripture journal, on your phone, you can follow along on the screen, or like we've been mentioning, um, you can just close your eyes and listen and hear. The Holy Spirit, um, just by the way, God is the one who gave you your imagination. It's not an instrument of the devil, can be, but he actually wants to meet us in all of these areas of our life. And your imagination is a, a central tool of the Spirit of God to help you visualize the reality of God. And that's the heart behind a lot of this book of Revelation is it's a, it's a visualization of the reality of the kingdom of God as it is in heaven and as it is on the earth. So I'm gonna invite Mark and Estelle to come and they are gonna read this morning. I'm not sure where the microphone went that was here. Alex took it. Where did Alex go? All right, so you guys can come on up. Again, uh, like this is, um, Reading out loud in front of people can be really intimidating for a lot of people. Um, and so uh, you're in, this is family here. Don't picture us all naked, but it is family. So um, we are looking forward to Revelation. Now you can open up to chapter 10 and 11 up to verse 18. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no, that there would be no more delay." but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. 
And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, uh, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been, tor have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and a great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour... There was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, a third woe is soon to come. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and for, for those who fear your name, both great and both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Awesome. Hey, one last time, I'm going to get you to stand with me, mostly so your butt doesn't start to tingle in about 20 minutes. There's nothing like spiritual necessarily about this, but we want to just pray together uh, this morning before we dive into this. Jesus, we... Um, we do declare you, Lord, over our lives this morning. Uh, this is your revelation. Ultimately, this is about you. It's from you. And we just ask as we dive into your word that you, Holy Spirit, would bring 
truth, conviction that you uh, would call us to follow Jesus in greater and greater ways. We bring ourselves under your word that it would shape us, that we would be formed by it instead of the other way around. I submit to you, Jesus, my interpretation of these things, the studying that I've done. I humble myself before you and, and I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak what is right and true and good today. Jesus, we just declare your authority and your lordship over this space and I just command any unholy power that's present, any ruler or principality or authority in the unseen realm that opposes the teaching of this book, that opposes the will of God. I command you to be bound and to be silent, to go to Jesus Christ of Nazareth for his judgment and determination. I just command any unclean spirits that are present here who have been given rights or access or authority in individual people's lives to be silent now in Jesus' name. We forbid you, enemy of God, from confusion, from stirring um, uh, untruth, from lying and deceiving now in Jesus' name. We ask, Holy Spirit, that your purposes would prevail for us. We pray for our kids downstairs, that they would experience the reality of the Lamb of God in their life, that they would experience the fullness of the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so we give ourselves and our, our thoughts to you. We give you our full capacity intellectually, emotionally, all of it. We give it to you, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. This passage is known by people much smarter than I am <laughs> to be the most difficult passage to interpret in this whole book of Revelation. What we just read by many scholars is recognized to be the most difficult to kind of figure out. What we just heard together is filled with Old Testament illusion. It's filled with symbolism and meaning and significance that was a first sort of uncovered in the Old Testament. And so like I've done every week in this, I want to just uh, put it out there. We are approaching this with humility and not a posture of antagonism. Um, I don't intend to upset you or antagonize you with anything that I say today. I'm not uh, declaring that this interpretation is de facto the truth and the only right one. There are a wide variety of interpretations, specifically of these chapters that we've just read. And so I just wanna remind you, as we step into these things, we're walking in with humility, we're walking in uh, with grace, and these are not things to divide over. I just wanna reiterate that again. Where you land on these chapters specifically, are not issues to break fellowship with each other over. And um, so that's not my heart. And um, 
I just uh, need your grace in that because I'm, I'm probably going to upset a few people pretty quickly here. Um, let's just dive in and then we're going to do a little bit of a recap as we walk through. So chapter 10, we're going to start there. John is given another a vision of a mighty angel. And just as a, as a point of reference again, um, my conviction is that revelation is not laid out chronologically. We are being given a series of windows into the heavenly places. And the purpose, one of the purposes of Revelation is to give us an upstairs perspective, like God's perspective on things, and a downstairs perspective. And like we've been talking about, the reality that Revelation uncovers is that the spiritual realm and our natural realm are intertwined, they cannot be separated, and they affect each other. And so John is given now another a perspective, another window into heavenly places. He's given another kind of window into the upstairs realm of things. And as we've talked through the seven seals and now we're onto the seventh trumpet, I just want to remind you again that we're not talking about a chronological sequence of events. The first four seals and the first four trumpets are grouped together. And they're actually talking about the same things, but from a different vantage point. Remember, again, I gave you the uh, analogy last time or a couple of weeks ago that uh, just like the four Gospels tell the same story from a different perspective and vantage point, we're now being given different perspectives and vantage points of the same thing. One of the keys to kind of finding our way through this is that the seventh seal the seventh trumpet, later on when we get to the bowls, the seventh bowl, they're all talking about the same thing, but from a different perspective. Same with number five and six, same with the interludes between them, they're all speaking to the same things. The seventh seal and the seventh trumpet are specifically talking about what will happen at the very end of the age when Christ comes back. They're talking about the final return of Christ. So I just want to get that into our perspective here. Chapter 10, this mighty angel uh, that John sees. Um, again, there's a wide perspective here of who this angel is. There's a few interpretations of this. Um, this could either just be an unnamed but very powerful celestial being could also be the angel of the Lord. As we kind of read about in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was the theophany of God in the Old Testament, which means that it was actually Jesus Christ in angelic form who visited uh, people in the Old Testament. We find the angel of the Lord um, as Jericho uh, and Joshua and the Israelites are about to to uh, kind of march around Jericho. He's met by the angel of the Lord. We find the angel of the Lord in an encounter with Abraham and other places. Some people say that this is the angel of the Lord. Some other people say that this is actually Jesus that's being referred to here. The description that John gives of this angel is actually consistent with the description of Jesus that we find earlier in the book of Revelation. We see the same types of descriptive words that we see the presence of a cloud. 
And like I mentioned to you right at the outset, often when the presence of a cloud is in view, it's a symbolism for the reality, the presence of God. Just like in the Old Testament, through the wanderings of Egypt in the desert, they were led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. That is a, a symbol for the reality of the immersive presence of God. And so uh, we're told that this angel is surrounded by a cloud, that he has a face like a sun. That's a direct correlation to the description of Jesus at the beginning of Revelation. We're told that his legs are like pillars of fire, so similar to Jesus having feet like bronze, burnished bronze. We're told that this person or this angel was wrapped in a cloud. He had a rainbow over his head. Often when rainbows are in view symbolically in scripture, it's a description of the throne room of God, the presence of God. And so in this description of this angel, we have a couple of different ways that we can interpret it. Either way, we're given this idea that this is not this is not the Philadelphia cream cheese angel. This is not Michael Landon. Remember that show? That was one of my favorites. This is not some little, you know, the, the, the Valentine's cherub, right? The chubby little angel. This is a powerful, powerful representative of the kingdom of God. I love what Eugene Peterson uses to express this. Eugene Peterson of this text calls them a vast, fiery, sea-girding creature with hell in his nostrils and heaven in his eyes. It's a beautiful description. The language of the cloud and of the pillar of fire in here would have reminded John's listeners, the Israelites who were scattered in Asia Minor, modern Turkey, they would have reminded them of the manifest presence of God. In another way, by using these uh, images in symbolism, John is reminding them that their God walks with them and is present with them in the middle of their suffering, in the middle of their persecution. God's presence and leadership are found in the middle of testing is another way that we can view this. John goes on to say his right foot was on the sea and his left foot on the land. Remember a number of weeks ago, I mentioned to you that in biblical times in the ancient Near East, whether it was a Christian uh, um, Israeli perspective or whether it was uh, from the Canaanites or the Babylonians or the Persians or any other kind of culture, they all viewed the sea in a very similar way. And the sea was representative of chaos and evil. The sea was representative of Satan's kingdom and the torment and the tumultuous reality that that kingdom plays on the earth. And so when this angel is described as standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, what, what John is expressing here is that this is an angel that stands in authority and power over all of the evil forces at work 
in the heavenly places, but also in authority and power over the expression of the kingdom of darkness on the earth. That this mighty angelic being stands above the rebellious spiritual realm, stands above chaos and evil and dysfunction and torment and brokenness, but he also stands above all of the kingdoms of humanity and every force of humanity that has set itself against the purposes of God. So look at what John is doing as he's talking to these seven churches that are undergoing great suffering and persecution at the hands of Domitian, the emperor of Rome. He's saying, look, God is with you. He's present, just like the pillar of cloud and fire led our ancestors through the desert out of the, the furnace of Egypt. He's present with you. And yeah, just a reminder, everyone, that God has authority over every dysfunction and rebellious spirit in the unseen realm and over every kingdom and ruler. Caesar is not Lord, Jesus is. And in the same way, we need to be reminded again as we walk through tumultuous realities on the earth, we need to be reminded that we're walking with the presence of God. And that Jesus is Lord over every empire that ever has been or ever will be. Our trust is not in the kingdoms of the earth. Our trust is not in a nationalistic Christianity sort of version. Our trust is in the Lordship of Jesus. He's sovereign over all sin and evil. He's sovereign over heaven and earth. And everything is under his feet. John moves on. We're going to jump now to these seven thunders that are mentioned sort of next. Of course, we don't know what these thunders were saying because John is told to keep it secret and private. But we do know that the living creatures in chapter 6 verse 1 were said to have had a voice like thunder. So most scholars believe that the thunders John is talking about are actually uh, heavenly beings of some kind. In the Bible, thunder is often associated with judgment. You can read that in Exodus 9, 23 and 24, 1 Samuel 7, 10, Psalm 29, 3. So a lot of scholars believe that what was revealed to John was some form of divine judgment. Um, that we're not permitted to hear. I think I just want to say one more thing about this. I wonder if part of what God is doing here, and even like, why, why even bother saying, like why bother even disclosing this? I think this is a healthy, um, this is a healthy boundary for us in obsessing with knowing kind of like the secret things. Like directing our life by and investing all of our time in a Da Vinci Code-esque kind of way of viewing the future. 
and where, where we're looking under every rock and uh, uh, to every person. We're reading the news and interpreting revelation through the news. And well, good, uh, you know, like look at what's happening to oil prices and look at what's going on in all these parts of the world. And we develop this, this large speculative framework that we really know nothing about at all but it's actually occupying our attention in such a way that we're not investing in just spending time in the presence of Jesus. I think this is a, a, a gentle warning to us to allow things to be mysterious and to not need to know. To allow God to possess mystery in and of himself and to realize that, that the the great thrust of revelation is how to follow the lamb in the midst of persecution through suffering, not around it or over it. I, I, in my heart, I, as, as I, I read the whole Left Behind series. I, for, for my whole life, as I mentioned to you before, I believed that this was a secret book of code. That, that really smart people could interpret and, and fit one thing to another and pick these random dates out of history and say, well, that was the beginning of this and that's the end of that and all of this stuff. And sometimes if we're not careful, that can lead to us investing more time in trying to discover what God has simply said is a mystery that we can't know. If the sun doesn't even know the hour or time, who are we to figure it out? I heard one scholar the other day, and we haven't got to this, so this is going to be another bomb drop maybe for some of you, but another scholar was talking about the Antichrist. And we have these conflicting views in Scripture because the Apostle John says many Antichrists have come and are present. And this one scholar I was listening to said this thing, and I literally stopped and went, whoa, I've never thought of it that way. He said, the devil has to have an antichrist on hand in every generation because Satan doesn't know the time or the hour. And I went, right. Like, what? like that's so true. But we live with this idea that somehow even Satan knows the exact time or hour when Jesus said he didn't even know. And so that, there, there's these mysteries that are wrapped up in Scripture that Scripture doesn't even attempt to reconcile, that we're just called to go, God, I, I'm going to trust you with that. And in this, uh, you know, God is saying, John, you're not given permission to tell your friends this. You're just going to have to trust me with it. And I think a good question for us in these seven thunders is do we, do we actually trust and follow in the reality of Jesus every day or are we given to wild speculation about what may or may not happen, what things may or may not mean? The word mystery in scripture, in the New Testament specifically, is most often described with the ways that Old Testament prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus in a way they had no concept of. So when Paul is saying, you know, the mystery of Christ was revealed, and when John is talking about a mystery, it was the reality that Jesus came with a kingdom that looked very different than the Jews were expecting. 
that then your average synagogue goer in the first century was expecting. They expected Jesus to come back and, and reestablish the national identity of Israel, to firm up Israel's boundaries and to rule Israel as an emperor would rule in a physical geographical sense. And Jesus didn't come to do that. But that was their expectation. And so that's why just before even the cross, the disciples are, they're, they're, they're getting weirded out. They're like, how can you be going to your death when you're supposed to be the Messiah that triumphs over Rome? And Jesus starts talking to them in ways they can't even conceptualize. That it's actually through death and surrender. It's by walking through suffering in obedience to the Father that the kingdom, the real kingdom will actually come. And that was like blow your mind uh, thinking for them. You remember Peter and the guys, they're like, Jesus, when are you going to come and reestablish the kingdom of Israel? When are you going to defeat the Romans? And Jesus is talking about a totally different reality, which was a mystery to them. I wonder how, as it relates to Revelation, I wonder how things are going to happen in ways we are not expecting. We've all, myself included, we've grown up in a paradigm of thinking about the end days that is quite unique to Western North American Christianity. We talked about this last week, the pre-tribulation secret rapture of the church and the, the way that we interpret this whole book is somewhat unique in all of Christendom and in, even in terms of the global church. But I'm curious as to which ways the coming of Jesus will be totally unexpected to us because he's proven in pattern in history that he doesn't come like we always expect him to. And he doesn't always work in your life and in my life the way that we expect him to. And this is where John, I think, is admonishing the churches and saying, look, Jesus is in your midst. He's got authority over heaven and earth. He's present with you. But he may be working in ways in your life and in your reality that you're not expecting. The question is, will you trust him and follow him? John moves on to talk about this scroll. Again, any, any interpretation of this is just speculative. It's, it's a, a hypothesis, an educated guess. In some way, I think that this is a message and the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom of God that John is being given and trusted with to proclaim. Some scholars believe that the substance of the scroll could be the actual text that follows in Revelation. But in some way, contextually in these chapters, in this whole kind of section of Revelation, I think John is being given a message, a declaration, a prophetic word for his friends and for the church on the earth today and back then. That scroll is described as sweet in his mouth. We're bringing now back language from Ezekiel. 
in the Old Testament. And then it's described as being bitter or sour in his stomach. And I think part of what's going on here is this dual nature that God has promised to liberate humanity and all of creation from the torment and bondage and suffering and imprisonment of sin and evil. God's promised that, but here's the sour part for much of the world, and maybe some of you today. Here's the part that doesn't sit well in your stomach. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, not you. It's not Buddha, it's not Muhammad, it's not a pantheon of gods, it's not a universalist kind of perspective and view. The, the bitter sourness is that God has promised freedom, but the vehicle through which he brings freedom is the cross of Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus. That message is not well received often. The sourness of this word is that we have a choice to make. Do we humble ourselves and surrender to Jesus? Do we lay down our rights as a follower of Jesus? In Philippians 2, it says Jesus humbled himself. He laid down every right he had. Are we that kind of church where we humble ourselves, where we actually surrender our rights? Do you know in Corinthians, when Paul was being attacked by the, ch by the church in Corinth, when, when he was being attacked and his, his authority as an apostle was in question, do you know what he used to defend his rights, to defend his authority? It was actually the surrender of his rights. Paul used the surrender of his personal rights as the substance of his authority on the earth. And this is a bitter, not inducing reality of the kingdom. Freedom comes, but it doesn't come through power and conquest. Freedom comes, but it doesn't come by lording things over people. Freedom comes through Jesus, who first was the one who surrendered in total obedience to the Father, walked through suffering and death, rose again, was resurrected bodily, ascended to heaven, and invites us to follow him in the way of the Lamb. I want to just gently submit to you that we've been in a test. I don't, I think this is like a small test we've been in in the last two years. A test of our heart and a test of whether we would be people that humble ourselves and surrender our personal rights. Surrender, I'm gonna say this very gently because I, I deeply wrestle with this. I'm not saying this in an accusatory way. I'm saying this as one who wrestles with you. Jesus and the Constitution, or Jesus and the Charter, are not the same thing. And that leaves a pit in many of our stomachs. What do you mean? What do you mean? that following the way of Jesus 
is counter to even the democratic sort of reality we live in. And this is the countercultural, counterformation reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not come in the way they expected. I just want to leave that with you. I'm not saying that in an accusatory way. I'm saying that as one who has deeply wrestled with you in that. Does it look more like Jesus to humble ourselves and surrender our rights? Or does it look more like Jesus to assert ourselves and demand our rights be met? I think that's a good question just to wrestle with. I'm going to leave it to you to wrestle that out. We move on. This whole next section as we talk about the temple and the two witnesses, this is where things get really confusing. Really, there is a a wide interpretive range here. I think the heading that I would give to this whole section is the reality of spiritual warfare. Again, we've been talking about revelation as the revealing of the upstairs realm and the downstairs realm and how these two work together. As we move on into um, chapter 11 here in this temple, this is the text that scholars recognize is the most difficult in the whole book of Revelation to interpret. This whole section is drenched in Old Testament imagery and references some take the view, if, if you have a futurist view of Revelation, uh, and so the way that most of us, I would, I would guess, most of us grew up being taught and believing that we are to take this whole text literally, like every word literally. So what most of us have grown up in is a, a belief, and I'm not, I'm not disparaging this, I'm not ridiculing this at all. What most of us grew up believing this meant is that a literal physical temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, that two literal people will stand in Jerusalem and prophesy for a literal 1260 days that they will be literally killed, their bodies will be literally left on the street uh, in disgrace for three and a half days, then they'll be resurrected and taken up to heaven with God. That's what we have been taught or what the vast majority of us, I suspect, would have been taught by this. I want to just offer a different perspective of this section. First of all, John can't be asked to measure the physical temple because that temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Most likely, Revelation was written in around 96 AD. So there's no longer a physical temple in Jerusalem to measure. The temple has been destroyed by the Romans. I want to just point out one other interpretive framework here for this. Through the course of the New Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus, the church, you and I, the body of Christ, are called the new temple of God. Paul says it in Corinthians, don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? 
Peter talks about this in 1 Peter, that we are a royal priesthood who, who are living stones who make up the foundation and the substance of the temple of God all through the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, Paul is talking about this reality. Revelation 3, 12 mentions this. That in a, a very real way, the followers of Jesus that make up the body of Christ, we are the new temple. Later on at the end of Revelation, it says there'll be no need for a temple in Jerusalem because Jesus will be reigning on the earth with his bride, with the church. And so I don't see in here a necessity that this be a physical, literal temple. I think that there's room. Again, these aren't things we divide over. I don't want you to try and run me down in the parking lot next week because I've upset you with this. These aren't things that we divide over or get angry over. I'm just saying, I, I think there's more than one way to examine this here. John is asked to measure. Often in scripture, measuring denotes the presence and the protection of God. It's a way to symbolically, metaphorically talk about the boundaries within God's presence and protection are found. This outer court that he's talking about represents the church and its interaction with a hostile pagan world. That outer court is reflective of our present reality as we interact with a world who is is antagonistic toward Jesus, is violently opposing the things of God. And then we move on to these two witnesses. Oh, my, oh, my. Okay, there's like a gazillion ways that people have interpreted. I, I just want to run through a few with you. I'm not going to expand on any of them. But there's many theories about who or what these two witnesses are. The first one is that these are the prophetic witness of the Old and New Testament. So symbolically representing the Old and New Covenants, the Old and New Testament. The second uh, kind of uh, idea of who these people are are that they're Enoch and Elijah. This is one of those theories that goes down a lot of rabbit holes because Enoch and Elijah, neither of them died. And so the people who uh, kind of espouse this view look to Hebrews where it says it's appointed for all men to die once. And then from that, they make inference, oh, that these are the two witnesses because all of these kind of stars align in the cosmos and they have to die. So their dying comes uh, in the middle of Jerusalem when they are killed and left for dead for three days. So then they go, that this, this is Enoch and Elijah, although there's no actual reference to that in, in anywhere in Scripture. The other references are that they're Elijah and Moses. This might be more plausible because of the specific references to power that they have. To shut the sky from rain, which is what Elijah did in Kings, or to uh, inflict the rivers and the oceans with blood, which is, was one of the plagues that came through Moses in the Exodus story. And so some people believe that these two men, these two people are Moses and Elijah because of the reference to the type of power that they have. 
some people believe, and this would be the one that I would generally kind of lean toward, would be that these two are actually representatives of the whole body of Christ called to bear witness for Jesus in the world in which we live. The reason that there are two of them is that in the Old Testament, in biblical realms, two was the number needed to give testimony in a legal court. You needed two people. That's why Jesus sent his disciples in two to walk in authority on the earth. That's why two is always referenced as a, as a necessary uh, representative. If you're going to bring testimony against someone or something, there has to be two of you. And so in that way, they fulfill this mandate as a, as a duo. They bring uh, a valid critique, prophetic word and testimony to the earth. And that that is the role of the whole body of Christ. There's images here that, uh, that echo back to Zechariah 4, 12 to 14. We're, we're told here about these two olive trees and these two lampstands, and you go, what the heck is that? I have no idea what that is. That's back to the Old Testament. And this vision Zechariah had, as they were being commissioned to rebuild the physical temple at that time in Israel, in this vision in Zechariah, Zerubbabel, the governor or the king of the time, and Joshua the priest, not the same Joshua who conquered Jericho, but another Joshua the priest, were commissioned by God to rebuild the physical temple. And in here we see this concept of being a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And that what God has called you and I to be on the earth is his royal priesthood. Ones who are proclaiming the, the gospel, the kingdom of God in a volatile and confrontational world. So these lampstands that we see were a reference to the churches we already heard about in chapter 1. The lampstands and the olive trees allude to the Holy Spirit's power and presence. Another reason I believe this is the whole church and not just two people, according to verses 9 to 13, the whole world will witness the defeat of these two witnesses. Now, there's a way around this that, um, you know, um, Hal Lindsey and some others have said, well, this will just be broadcast on CNN. So then everybody will see it. Um, I'm not so sure. That would be another one of those, like, ah, I don't know. I, it could be. But for sure there is actually uh, an illusion here to the reality that this, this whole world bearing witness, I think, implies that there will be a global experienced reality of oppression against the church. And that in every corner of the earth, there will be men and women, there will be forces of evil that are, that are actually seeking to destroy the church. And the whole world will witness what they believe is the death of the church. So when these two men die, I believe that's symbolic 
It says that when they die, the people of these countries celebrate. I believe that we are actually moving toward a period of time, I don't know when, toward a period of time where it will look like the church is dead. Like the church has been defeated by secularism. The church has been defeated by all the special interest groups that are out against it. The church has been defeated by the political powers that be in the world today. It'll look like the church is no more and the world will rejoice. Why? Why does it say that? Because the teaching of these witnesses, the confrontation of the church, the confrontation of the kingdom of God is offensive and repulsive to them. It's a, and you can see this even today. When you suggest that you follow Jesus and you suggest that there's a different way to living than all of these interest groups are telling you, when you suggest that the reality is you don't define your own truth and, and divinity is not found within you, that you don't have everything you need, when you suggest that you can't define every area of your human sexuality and all of these things, that's, a, that's an affront to the world. And it's, a, it's a, a shackle. They see that as a, a shackling of their life and their purpose. And all they want to do is break out of that. And when that seems to happen on the earth, they rejoice. But that rejoicing is not long lived. 1260 days equals 42 months equals three and a half years. We see this in the story of Elijah, we see this in Daniel, and we see this in other places. Again, some people would interpret this as a literal three and a half years that happened, a literal 1,262 days. I think there is certainly very smart people who view that, I view this symbolically. That period of time, that 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, always in scripture is used to reference a period of intense testing. It's always used to reference a period of intense trial that the people of God go through. I think that that's what is in view here, that there's going to be an increased measure of testing and trial that we'll experience on the earth as it gets closer to the return of Christ, the temperature's gonna go up, not down. And as I said before, just gently with humility, I don't think the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation secret rapture of the church so that us Western North American Christians don't have to experience the kind of suffering the whole rest of the church has been under for thousands of years. I just don't see that as a tenable reality. And my fear is because we have grown up in that, what do we say? We say things like, I just can't wait till Jesus comes to get off this earth. I just can't wait to the rapture so I'm removed from all of this pain and suffering. What I feel like the call of God is on my life today is to admonish you, is to, to plead with you, to strengthen your spiritual life because things are going to get hot and spicy on the earth. We've been through a small like in the global scheme of things, a very small testing and much of the church crumbled under the weight of it. 
I experienced deep strain over the last couple of years. How do I walk through this, God, with you? How do I be faithful to you? How, do, how are you calling me to engage with and interact with the world around me? How do, I, how do I follow you and be faithful when government is telling me to do one thing, but my scripture and my, you know, my conviction tells me another? And this has been, I think, a small pre-tremor test to see what the inner constitution, the inner spiritual life of the church is really like. And I feel like we haven't done so well because we've been fighting for our rights. We've been demanding things. We've been exalting our personal need for security and safety and all kinds of things. And I feel like part of what is going on in this book as John wrote it to the first uh, century believers that he was friends with and pastors with, he was saying, look, the way through is the way of the lamb. It's a way through persecution. It's a way through suffering, not over it or around it. I think this 1260 days is a is a powerful reminder that as we get closer to the return of Jesus, the church is gonna come under increased pressure. Your personal salvation, your personal faith is gonna come under increased pressure to conform to the pattern of the world. It's already happening in many ways. It's happening online and in social media, on all of your feeds to simply in humility to express a conviction about a biblical historical view of sexuality or life or whatever. Peace even in contrast to war comes with a volatile, aggressive opposition and I think Jesus is inviting us in this season to be strengthened in our spiritual lives. We, you and I, cannot afford to play church anymore. We can't afford for Sunday morning to be the substance of our spiritual life. Lastly, in this passage, and one of the reasons I largely view this symbolically is that there's direct parallelism with Matthew 24 and Daniel 7. And in those passages, Jesus and Daniel are talking about the church as a whole. They're talking about nations and groups of people, not individuals. Again, I, we can differ on this and there's, there's grace for that. There, we can do that. But I think what I want to communicate to you today is that the thrust of what's behind this teaching, this chapter and a half specifically, is to reprovoke our awareness that there is a spiritual battle going on. It's, it's taking place in heavenly places, but it's felt and experienced on the earth. Things aren't always what they seem. And the question we have to ask ourselves, and we're going to be confronted with this more and more as we walk through this book, which way of life is driving your own life right now? Is it the vision 
of Rome, as Paul would have, or as John would have said, or is it the vision of the Lamb? See, there's a strong, strong critique here to thinking that it's through political power, through aggression, through all of these means that the kingdom of God is established on the earth. And that's not what we're brought to experience through the reality of Jesus. The question is, as we walk, are we going to be people who follow in the pattern of the lamb or in the pattern of the world? It could be very possible that we are in the beginnings of the fall of modern democracy. I had a good friend of mine point out to me the other day that our democratic system, for all of the blessings it's given us, for all of the good things, our democratic system is not biblical. Our democratic system is not biblical. There are many benefits to it, and I'm thankful for it. But the Bible does not teach a modern Western democratic structure for how to live under the authority of God. It doesn't. So, why am I saying that? Because if we're going to witness the fall, potentially, of the democratic world that we've grown up in and that we love, are we going to fight to maintain that, thinking that that's God's tool or vehicle on the earth? You've got to ask yourself some of these deep, deep questions. Or what if the coming of the kingdom of God doesn't look like I expect it to look? This is what I believe revelation is actually provoking in us and what I'm trying to stir up in you. If you go to lunch right now and your, your lunchtime is filled with Andrew said this and he said that, great. Again, just don't run me over next week. You can stick your hand out and smack me as you go by maybe, but just no full bumpers on my legs. But these are the questions we, we need to start wrestling with this again. And the reason I'm saying that is because for my own life and maybe for many of you, we live with an assumption that the governmental system we live in is the godly one and that God will fight tooth and nail to maintain it. What I'm saying to you is I don't think so. But that's a way of seeing the world that is driven by the world, not by Scripture or the Spirit of God. I want to encourage you, if you're super annoyed with me right now and bothered, go, go back to Scripture. Go back to Scripture and see the pattern of God's kingdom governance on the earth. And it's not majority rules democracy. Again, I'm not saying that there are, uh, everything is wrong with that. I'm not saying it needs to be burned to the ground and all of that. There are huge blessings we're all benefactors of in that. There's goodness that comes from that. I am uh, thankful and cognizant of all of that. What I'm saying is John begins to challenge the very depth of how they view the world. And if we're viewing the world from the lens of the world, we're going to run into trouble. 
as Jesus' return gets closer, we've got to be people of the book and of the presence of God. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus, I acknowledge and would quickly admit and confess my own perceptions are often skewed. My own ideas are, are not always direct revelations from you and your throne. And so I just submit to you the things that I've even said today. I want your conviction and your correction. Jesus, at the end of the day, I... Father, my prayer is for my family and the, my friends here and their families that you would begin to stir in us a, a, a new, deeper kind of walk with you where we would ignite a hunger and longing for the presence of Jesus in such a way that we have the wisdom and the discernment we need to walk through very confusing and troubling days. Father, I pray that you would strengthen each person here, each family here, that above everything else, above every kind of possible interpretation of these chapters, that you would draw them to you in your presence. That we would be people that look like and walk like and talk like and think like Jesus. I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our interpretive lens for the things of this world right now. And Father, we, what we do is we cry out to you for your mercy. We cry out to you for renewal, for kingdom revival and renewal on the earth. Father, where there's division and hatred and animosity, we pray for your mercy. Father, I pray that you would equip us to be people who bring a prophetic witness of the kingdom of Jesus Christ to this world, but through the means of the cross of surrender, of compassion, of mercy, of kindness and gentleness in the way of Jesus. In Jesus' name, I just forbid every uh, unclean spirit wanting to twist or distort or confuse the word of God in our hearts to be silenced now. I forbid you, enemy of God, from stirring up confusion, uh, anger, bitterness, animosity, a hopelessness, um, heresy. <laughs> we just ask that you, uh, Spirit of God, would walk with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.